Let the praises of the King rise among us. Let it rise. Let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Let the songs of the Lord rise among us. Let the joy of the King rise among us. Let it rise. Oh, let it rise. Oh, joy of the king rise among us let it rise Way among 
with me for prayer. Will you do so? Dear Heavenly Father, we are bowed before you, and we do say we welcome you here, Lord Jesus. And we are so thankful for 
this day, and we're thankful for you, Lord. And we just declare and we say that you, you alone are God. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You are the author and perfecter of our faith, and you're the lover of our souls. And there's never a time that we're separated from you, despite the fact that we can't all be together here in this building this morning. We're not separated from you. In fact, we're bound together, Lord, because we have you in our hearts. And so no matter where we are worshiping this morning, you are with us. Your presence is everywhere. And we just thank you for that. And Lord, as we are, are gathered um, in spirit this morning, we just pray that our hearts, Lord Jesus, would be, would be open before you, that we would allow ourselves, Lord, to be um, as fertile soil before you, open to your spirit doing its transforming work in our hearts, in our lives, And we thank you, Lord, for, um, for the word that you have for, for us this morning, the word that you desire to speak to us through Conrad. And I pray, Lord, that he would speak this word with integrity and with clarity, Lord, with boldness and courage, that you would give strength to his voice, that your shield of protection, Lord Jesus, would be around him, protecting him as he delivers this word and in the week to come. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to speak this word to us this morning through Conrad. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart always be acceptable in thy sight this morning, this week, and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Heidi, for praying for me, and good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. As Heidi was praying that there would be this, that there is, not that there will be, there is this connection that we have together with one another because we are in Christ. And I found myself earlier this morning praying that, that there would be an awareness that we remain one body, there is one spirit, one hope, one calling, and that's who we are, no matter what realities are in terms of our being disassembled this morning. We are one body with one hope, with one spirit, with one calling. And I hope you can say amen to that wherever you are. Again, I greet you in Jesus' name to those of us who are worshiping live or who will be worshiping with us later. Again, I want to express my appreciation to Landon Wenger and the tech team for the wonderful work they continue to do to improve the quality of our digital presence. I'm amazed at what has changed in our congregation over the past four or five weeks that would have taken months for us to do, or years, if ever, um, but this crisis has spurred us to do that, and I want to thank the board and ministry team and you as a congregation for your support in this time, for the flexibility, for the grace that you've shown as we have worked together to be um, the church as one, but even as we're disassembled. I think God is positioning us to continue to be his witness, but to expand that witness throughout the world as a result of this time. I'm struck by the fact that heaven is at work among us, that heaven, the work of heaven is becoming the work of earth in ways that we wouldn't have imagined six weeks ago, five weeks ago. And that as Jesus prayed, we're part of the heavenly work now, that, that his, his prayer was that, that, that heaven's work, 
would be done on the earth. Change is often very difficult for us to accept or to carry out, but the crisis that we're in the middle of has forced change that I think was on heaven's heart all along. And we're reminded in this time that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And in Philippians, as Paul reminded us last week, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. One of the questions that Heidi and I have been asking a lot as we've been talking about this season is what changes have occurred in our lives, in our marriage, in our family, in us as individuals that we want to make sure are part of the post-COVID-19 future. And I've been asking, and we've been asking together the same thing about our congregation. What is it that's occurring now? What changes are occurring, are we making, that we want to retain or build upon when we're able to assemble together again? Or what are the things that we're letting go of and detaching from individually, or as families, or as couples, or as a congregation? What are the things that we're letting go, that we've been forced to let go, that we need to let go of as we move forward when we're reassembled as a congregation? In other words, this is an amazing time for a resetting. If you remember my sermon series a year ago on the bonsai tree, the bonsai tree periodically needs to be reset. God hasn't given us a choice about being reset. He is resetting us, and we get to work with him or against him. It's a time to recreate. It's a time to renovate. It's an amazing time. It's a rare opportunity when we get this kind of experience and situation on such a global scale. And by global, I mean in every level of our lives. We have an opportunity to recreate, to hear what God is saying, and to make changes that we would have resisted or never seen possible in, in, with outside, outside of this crisis. Having the space created for us, and I would say having the, having the space that God has created for us to rebuild, to renew, to restore, is unusual because we, are, we tend to be victims of habits. We tend to be victims of our own comfort. We're like inmates in prison, in prisons often that others have built for us. Or we're like puppets dangling on strings, controlled by history and tradition and the way we've always done things. But this is an opportunity to let go of those strings. In fact, those strings have been cut. This is an opportunity to get out of those prisons because those prison walls have fallen down. This is the kind of opportunity, folks, that almost never happens on the scale that is happening now. Heidi and I often share with couples in premarital counseling that you get this kind of opportunity when you come together in marriage. You get to rebuild, renew, recreate, start again, and to put into place those things that are really important to you that may have been important to your family of origin or may not have been, it's the same here, but on, but on a massive scale, not just at the level of our marriages, but also there. In other words, folks, this is a time for conversion. This is a time for seeing things differently. This is a time for spiritual transformation. This is a time when heaven has invaded earth in a new way. A chance for the new to be born and the old to die. This is like Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones into which new breath was breathed and flesh and bodies emerged. This is, I said, as I said a few weeks ago, a kairos moment that comes only rarely and only rarely, certainly, in our lifetimes. In Lancaster Conference these days, we're sending out a, a survey to congregations, to their pastors, to ask them what changes they've made and what do they want to retain and what do they want to let go of, just as we learn together. 
But I think this coming week, you'll get a questionnaire from me asking the same kind of thing, just for us to learn from one another. It'll be anonymous. I'll set it up so that you don't, uh, I won't know who's responding to whom. But I think we could learn from one another in this time. What are we learning? How are we experiencing God? What are we seeing? Um, and what do we want to retain? What do we want to let go of? Whether it's our lives, our families, or even as a congregation. And I'll give you a summary in a week or two of some of those um, responses. And so for most of us, this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of shot at a new conversion and spiritual transformation. And the exciting thing for Heidi and I is that we are seeing that happening among many of you. We're seeing folks responding to this crisis, responding to this time with a recognition that many of the ways we chose to live before are irrelevant or insignificant and that what we are looking at now is a new reality that God is making visible to us. In Scripture, there are a number of these key moments like this. And one of them that I was preaching from prior to this crisis was from Joshua. And I'm going to read Joshua 3, 1 to 5, just to remind you where we were before this crisis came. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. And Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing, amazing things among you. This again is a passage we spent much time in in the few weeks leading up to this crisis, not knowing what was coming. But God was speaking to us then telling us that we as a congregation had crossed the Jordan River from the west side to the east side over the last several years. And while it may feel like sometimes we're on the west side because of our experiences and crises that we have, that we're actually in the wilderness, I reminded you then that we are not on the west side. We are on the east side. We have crossed the river. We needed to hear that message from the Lord before this crisis began to give us courage and boldness to make the changes that we've needed to make in this land that we've never been in before. I cannot imagine how we might have functioned over the last few weeks were we still on the west side of the Jordan as a congregation. The functionality and health of this congregation that's taken root in the last several years, the growth in leaders, the revelation of new gifts, you are seeing expressed in a crisis now in a way that would not have been possible before. God has been good to us, folks. God has prepared us for this season and this time in a way that some days overwhelms me. I encountered a situation this week in which I quickly forgot that we were on the east side of the Jordan. And I responded to that particular situation out of pain and memories from the west side. In other words, though I have myself said to you that God has brought us from the west to the east, it, was still, it, it still feels sometimes like we're on the west side. The confusion, the chaos, the pain of the west side still hangs with us. We still sometimes carry that across the Jordan to the east side. And so I found myself in this situation responding out of memories of the west side of the Jordan. But within a short time, as God resolved the situation, one of you gently reminded me that, see, we're not on the west side anymore. We're actually on the east side. 
We need not live in fear of the things that haunted us before. Because we are in a land we've never been in before, and God has promised to do amazing things among us. But just like the crossing of the Jordan River was an opportunity to create a new future for God's people, so the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was also, even more so, a Kairos moment where God created an opportunity to reset the direction of history and to bring about the birth of the church and a brand new era of relationship with his people. What an amazing new land God had led the disciples and Jesus' followers into after the resurrection of Jesus. Given that amazing event, you would have imagined perhaps that the disciples would be sitting around, hanging out, talking together about what big steps did God have in store for them next. What kingdom opportunities lay in store for them given the resurrection of Jesus? Given this Kairos moment, his defeat of sin and death, after carrying our sin, becoming our sin, becoming a curse for us, what amazing things might lay in store for them. For like the crossing of the Jordan River from the old to the new, so the resurrection of Jesus was a crossing for God's people for all time, a crossing forever from death to life, from darkness to light, from the old covenant to the new, from hell to heaven, from sin to salvation, from separation from God to the deepest intimacy possible with God. What an incredible opportunity for the disciples to be resetting both their individual lives and their life together as the closest followers of Jesus. Asking questions like, how might we harness this new power for the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked to us so much about? How do we join Jesus in bringing God's kingdom to earth? How do we get this great news out to those who are still in darkness and death and despair and blindness and bondage and on and on? How, how do we do that? But that's not what we find following the resurrection of Jesus among his disciples. That's not at all what the writers of the gospel tell us was going on. Yes, there were moments of joy and celebration, and John in particular highlights those. But there were also many moments of fear and doubt and disbelief that occur fairly regularly in those 40 days following Jesus' resurrection. Imagine with me Jesus who died and rose again, this incredible story of God's intervention into the world, and yet these disciples, the gospel writer said, came to the tomb and then they went home. They came to the tomb and then they went fishing. And yet, as we're going to see in the Gospels of John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps showing up among them. In the midst of their fear and disbelief and doubt, he comes. And that is our hope. That is our hope in this moment, that no matter what pain you're feeling, no matter what grief you're feeling, no matter what despair you're feeling, no matter what confusion you're feeling, Jesus always comes to us if we are open to receiving him. That is the hope of this time. I'd like you to look at several passages from the Gospels, short verses, short scriptures, that highlight the confusion and chaos, disbelief, fear, that really seems to have characterized the disciples in these moments following Jesus' resurrection. Matthew 28, 16 to 17, say this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain Jesus had told them to go to. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And this was right before his ascension. Mark 16, 9 to 14. 
When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. They returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And then Luke 24, 9 to 12. When they came back to the tomb, they told all these things to, to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. The closest people to Jesus in the three years preceding this did not believe. Over and over and over again, there is this message from the gospel writers, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that there was a cloud of unbelief that covered these disciples in these days. What do we see in, this, in these passages? As I've already noted, first and foremost, a whole lot of unbelief. A refusal to accept, an inability to accept, a, den a, den a denial that the resurrection had occurred even among those who loved him most. A refusal to see or an inability to see, an unwillingness to see, and I want to I say this with empathy because I think many of us are in that kind of moment now. Unable to see, unwilling to see what God is up to, what kind of moment this really is. Let us just get through this, Lord, to what it was normal. But that's not the kind of moment this is. That's the kind of moment the disciples desired for it to be again. Let's hang out with Jesus again. Let's go around the fire and have fish. Let's do this and that with Jesus. Let's, let's, let's have our name in lights with him, this miracle worker. But that's not the kind of moment God had created for them. This was for them a refusal to accept or an inability to accept that history had changed in just three days. That the world would never be the same. That they would never be the same. That they could not go back to what had been the same. Peter went home. Others went fishing. At its heart, unbelief is the unwillingness to accept what is true and real about the world around us, and mostly about God himself. And I say unwillingness, but it's probably more complex than just a stubborn unwillingness. Unbelief may be the greatest, when un unbelief, we may struggle with our unbelief most when what is true and real becomes so different than what we had known in the past. And I think that was part of what the disciples struggled with. This new reality had become so different suddenly for them and what they had known for three years with Jesus. It's a kind of cognitive dissonance. You know, we say things, I hear, I, I say these things, and I hear others of us saying these things to one another. Isn't this time a crazy time? This feels so surreal when I go to Giant, and I'm six feet behind people, and I have to wear a face mask, and it feels like some dystopian story out of a movie that we couldn't have imagined creating. Or I just can't wrap my head around this. Do you hear that language? It's this inability to kind of perceive what is in front of us, what is clearly in front of us, but an inability to wrap our heads around it because we're so accustomed to what was. We've lived in what was. We've absorbed what was. 
What was is embedded within us. It's all we knew. We're struggling with believing what we're experiencing and we're experiencing and we're seeing. And so I think we can relate to the disciples who also were struggling with understanding, with, ex- with the experience that they saw in front of them. I think, again, as I said, there's un- unbelief is complex. We may choose or may not believe because, again, as I said, the new reality lies outside of an experience we've ever had before. As some of you know, in 2013, I slid off the roof and broke my hip. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't know that was possible. Of course it's possible, but it hadn't been part of my experience up to that point. Now I know I can fall off a roof, especially when I'm careless. But if we don't see it for ourselves, if it's not our experience, we're often not going to trust the people who tell us it's possible. It's like we have to learn it for ourselves. And Thomas was a perfect example of this. Thomas the disciple. Unless I see, unless I feel, unless I touch, I don't believe you people. I don't trust you. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's real. Or it may be our unbelief is related to simply the grief of experiencing what was normal and now is just gone. It's the discomfort that we're feeling that just, it's the edginess, it's the agitation, it's the discomfort with just this new reality that is so hard to kind of get a handle on. Last night, I, late in the, in the evening, when the stars were out, it was a beautiful night, I walked around the college campus, and I grieved. I grieved the loss of students who had to rush to pull together their stuff in just a few days. Seniors who will not celebrate commencement on the Dell. Seniors I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to. Colleagues that I don't see, except on Zoom. Students I don't see except on Zoom. Grieving that so much of what I enjoy about the springtime, although it's crazy busy usually, there was something I enjoyed about the rituals of celebrating in this time. It may seem like a small thing, but I think all of us are getting hit by all of those things. Whether it's weddings, whether it's commencement celebrations, whether it's loss of work, whether it's not seeing each other here on Sunday morning, And for some of us, that grief is just building. It's not going anywhere. And so grief can get in the way of our belief. It can overwhelm us at times. It can shut down our ability to really see what God is doing. And it's not so much that we're resisting God as it is we just can't seem to get away from our grief. Or perhaps we're shutting down the grief rather than allowing ourselves to experience it and to move through it. Or perhaps our unbelief is related to uh, an awareness that if we accept this new reality, we're going to have to do something about it. If we accept this new reality, we're going to have to make some changes. We're going to have to trust God in new ways. And, And that feels like a loss of control for us. A world, a loss of a world that felt like we were in control when really we now know we were not. And finally, Another reason we might not believe is simply we've been so disappointed in the past in these key moments, in other moments where it seemed like change could occur and we tried, but it just didn't work. And so we lost the courage to believe that change can happen this time, that we can be different, that we will be different. Whatever the case, it would appear that the gospel writers want us to see the unbelief because they keep repeating it. 
you know, they could have put such a positive spin on these last couple of chapters. The celebrations and parties and plans and strategies for how they were going to move into this new season. But they, they, don't, they don't cover this up. They simply tell it like it was. The disciples over and over again did not believe. They did not believe the new reality that existed and what God wanted to do in that season. And I think they were speaking to us 2,000 laters and saying, look, saints, if those who lived with Jesus for three years, who saw his miracles, who heard him say, I will die and rise again, still couldn't believe, how much will we be challenged to believe today? That God continues to intervene in the world. That God continues to be in control of the world. That God will take care of us. That God wants to change us. That God wants to transform us. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that works within us. I think they probably, by God's Spirit, knew that if they were challenged by that, we would be challenged by that too. The problem with failing to believe that we've crossed the Jordan River or to believe that the resurrection makes a difference, or to believe that my own personal conversion to Jesus makes a difference, again, is, is perhaps a little complex, but I think it rides on several things. It's a problem because, first of all, it keeps us from worship. I hope you worship this morning, as Kate and Nikki played and sang for us. Those songs so much re- re- reflected the powerful presence of Jesus that comes to us in these moments of confusion and chaos. If we can be kept from worship, which is our primary weapon against unbelief, the enemy can do whatever the enemy wants to do among us. It's why worship and the season of worship that Kate is leading us in is so fundamentally critical. If we give up worship, we fall into unbelief and we fall into the enemy's hands. And I am so grateful for the way Kate is leading us. Number two, if we fail to believe, we will remain stuck on the other side. We'll remain stuck on the west side of the Jordan. We'll remain stuck on the pre-resurrection side. We'll remain stuck on the pre-conversion side. We'll remain stuck on the pre-COVID-19 side. If we fail to believe, we will be stuck and we will be paralyzed in a world that no longer exists anyway. So... If we look back at that world, pre-COVID-19, and we say, wow, there were some things about that world that I really now recognize I didn't want to live in, that's one thing. But if we look back at that world and say, I wish I was still there, when it's not going to be there when all of this is over, that's even worse. That's living in illusion that no longer exists. Because unbelief prevents us from changing. If we believe we are still in the wilderness, even though we're on the east side of the river, if we believe that Jesus' resurrection did not occur, or we don't live as if it did, if we believe that giving our life to Jesus doesn't change anything, then nothing will change. If we live as if these things are not real, then nothing will change. In other words, in this moment, like in other Kairos moments, you and I get to decide whether crossing the river from west to east, whether believing in the resurrection power of Jesus and receiving it, and whether our conversion makes any difference to Jesus or not, we get to decide whether it makes a difference. This is a moment of choice for us, folks. And if we treat this as anything else, we will allow the choices to be made for us. 
This is a moment of choice for us as couples, as individuals, as families, as a church. How will we choose to live in this season and steward well these changes that I want to say clearly God has allowed, God has orchestrated, God is behind? And I think another problem with unbelief, the third one, is that is that we live in fear then when we choose not to believe. Fear that God really doesn't have the best in mind for his people. Fear that God has taken his eye off of us. Fear that we really don't matter. Fear that he is not the giver of life. Fear that he will not see us through this. Fear that he doesn't actually watch the sparrow fall. Fear that he doesn't actually count the hairs of our head. Fear that we, just in the midst of this, do not matter. And so we forget. We forget his love. We forget his care. Because the fear overwhelms us. One morning this week, I awoke, I woke wide awake at about 3.30 a.m. And I had this deep peace in my heart that I had done what I needed to do in a particular situation. And it was such a sweet moment of peace. In some ways, an unusual moment for me in the morning. And a moment when I got up at that time and spent time with the Lord and journaled, I began to hear things from him about myself that I needed to hear. Because I, like you, respond in situations, as I said earlier, as if I'm still on the other side of the resurrection, as if I'm still on the other side of my conversion to Jesus. I continue, like you at times, to frame my reality through those prior situations and experiences rather than in the truth that I have been saved and redeemed and restored and recreated and made whole. And that's why it's so important for us to claim this time as a time of restoration. That's why it's so important for us to claim this time as a, re, as a time of recreation. That's why it's so important for our children to see us claim this time as a time of recreation, as a time of God's restoration, as a time of God's intervention. How are they watching us respond in this moment to this time? Believing that God remains sovereign, believing that God remains in control, believing that God will take care of our every need through this time, believing that God has good purpose for, purposes for us and will continue to do good to those who love him. How are your, our children and those around us experiencing our response? The wonderful thing as we end this morning is that John offers us hope when we are beyond hope. When we are overwhelmed with pain and we're overwhelmed with grief and we're overwhelmed with fear and we're overwhelmed with despair and when we're overwhelmed with our unbelief, John tells us that Jesus keeps coming to us. That Jesus keeps showing up. While the other gospel writers tended to emphasize the unbelief, rightly so, John provides us with an antidote to that unbelief. And that antidote, like always, is simply the presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus. Because nothing breaks our unbelief like an experience with Jesus. Nothing breaks our unbelief like waking up at 3.30 a.m. and hearing him and experiencing him saying, it is finished. It's okay. I've covered it. 
I've taken care of it. Nothing breaks our unbelief like an experience of Jesus breaking into the locked rooms where we're hanging out in fear. Nothing breaks our unbelief or our doubts like Jesus showing up and saying, see, I told you so. And nothing breaks our unbelief like Jesus busting into an ordinary fishing trip and overwhelming us with a catch of fish like we've never had and feeding us and having breakfast on the beach. John says this in verses 19 to 29 and 21 to 1 to 14. And again, I want you to hear this hope in the pres- that comes with the presence of Jesus in light of the fear that we know the disciples were living in, in light of the unbelief and the confusion. On the evening of the first day of the week, verse 19, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the, the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in my hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, Thomas. You see how Jesus cares about Thomas's doubts? Put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those like us today who have not seen and yet believed. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of the Galilee. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, And two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And they said, no. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will have some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. Jesus said, Bring some of the fish you have caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And so Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Folks, in these days when we forget that we have been delivered to the east side of the Jordan, when we forget that we're living in the post-resurrection side of of, of Christ's life, when we forget that we have been saved and redeemed and restored by Jesus, when we have trouble accepting the new normal that is and will be in this post-COVID-19 world that is coming, 
Our one hope is that Jesus still shows up to those who have eyes to see him, who are looking for him, and whose hearts remain soft to him in the midst of doubt and fear and grief. For in these passages from John, we see that Jesus met their fears by declaring peace, or shalom, which simply means, disciples, God is in control. God is, has ordered this world. God still reigns in this world in heaven and earth. God is still writing history. We see that Jesus met their doubts by showing up and revealing his wounds to Thomas to help him believe. And he crashed their failed fishing party by giving them the greatest catch they probably had ever seen. In all of these situations, Jesus meets emotional needs, he meets physical needs, and he meets spiritual needs, and he meets their needs for fellowship. So I want want you to hear this this morning, that wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing, Jesus cares about your emotional needs, your spiritual needs, your physical needs, and your need for fellowship and connection. Being on the east side of the Jordan, being on the post-resurrection side, Being sanctified and forgiven by Jesus means that at any moment he can and will and does show up. Meeting us right where we are in the midst of whatever crisis we're facing. And he says to us, peace, addressing our doubts and our fears and our anxieties. And this is always what he is up to. He said he would not leave us comfortless. Coming, coming, coming waiting for us to crack the door of our hearts just enough to breathe upon us, peace, my child, peace. All is well in the kingdom. All is well with what matters most. The kingdom that you belong to remains in place. That kingdom above all kingdoms. That kingdom where I reign and that kingdom that matters most. And so I want to conclude by challenging us, as Martin Luther said, in these days, let us stay with Christ. Although our eyes do not see him and our reason does not grasp him. Because when we have Christ, we have everything. But we also have lost everything when we lose him. Lord Jesus, we recognize your presence this morning. Whether we can feel you or hear you or understand what you're saying to us, we just say you are here. And that your presence breaks through the walls. Your presence breaks through the barriers. Your presence breaks through the chaos. It breaks through the unbelief. It breaks through the doubt. And so I pray for each one of us in whatever we are experiencing in this season, that your presence among us, in our homes, as we are at home, that in our home you would break through like you broke through the disciples, even to the disciples, even if the door is locked to you, even if our hearts are locked to you, You want to come to us. And so we just invite you to come to our lives, our families, our homes, our experiences, and to meet us, to heal us, to restore us, to recreate us, to make us what you want us to be for this next season of life that you're calling us into, where you remain in control, where you remain faithful, where you remain good, where you remain the one who counts every hair on our head and watches every sparrow fall. That's who you are, and that's who we are as your children, and we give you thanks. Amen.
Following the end of the service, we will have our adult Bible study at 11 o'clock. The Zoom link was included in the email that went out Friday evening and yesterday um, to you. If you did not receive that email, that's a, it came out through MailChimp, a set of announcements that's coming out each week now on Fridays. If you did not receive that, please let us know. We want to make sure that you're getting that. Um, it's been going into some folks' spam folders, and we're, tr- we're taking care of that. Um, so um, just let us know if you're not getting that. Again, we're trying to find ways to stay connected to you and to one another and ultimately to Christ through this time. Lord Jesus, again, thank you for your presence in this moment, for making this moment possible. May our time together in this last hour bear the fruit that you desire that it bear in our lives, in our homes, and in the world. And we just thank you that you are present with us that we are not on a planet alone, but we are on a planet that you have created and that you continue to have plans for as we move towards a new heaven and a new earth. In Jesus' name, amen.